uh, this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and it's going to be up on the screen, and Philip's going to read for us. So just out of, I know we've kind of been up and down, but out of, out of respect for the reading of God's word, would you stand together and, as, as Philip reads, and, and let's uh, let the, the word of the Lord lead us into the teaching this morning. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through, through Jesus Christ for it stands in scripture behold I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that has that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him, to punish those who will do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters, which all respect, not only to the good and gentle, also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow it in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued untrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself wore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. Amen. This morning we're continuing further up, further in, 
Next week will be the last sermon of Further Up, Further In. Uh, one of my mentors, Galen Hackman, will be with us next Sunday to give uh, the final sermon of this series. And Galen's a really helpful teacher. I'm looking forward to that time. And then we're going to go in to our Easter series, which is purposefully built upon Further Up, Further In. So our Easter series will be Never Forsaken. Um, the word of the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we're going to look at examples in scripture where we got to wrestle with that because it appears like we're forsaken. Jonah in the belly of the whale. Paul shipwrecked. There are many times in our life where our experience is being forsaken and yet the Lord, the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we're going to look at that together. But this week, continuing in further up, further in, I'm going back to a little bit of the corporate nature of what it means to live life with God. So we, we've kind of been bouncing back and forth between individually, what does it mean to walk with God, and corporately, what does it mean to walk with God. So we started our series by looking at different postures of God and saw that the word of the Lord teaches us that we are to live life with the posture of life with God. But this isn't a solo call. We're not called to do this alone. God has called us to live life with God, with others. Do you remember the uh, quote I put up by Dietrich Bonhoeffer a couple weeks ago where he said, if you're a person who wants to be alone all the time, beware of being alone because your salvation rests in the fact that you are part of the people of God. And there's a corporate part of your salvation, a corporate call. And then he said, to those who can't be alone, be careful, be careful of always being with people because you'll stand before God alone. And, and God has called you alone. And so there's this, this tension, and it's not really a tension, but I think we feel it based on our identity and our design, where we're called to both have a walk of solitude with the Lord, where, where it's us and him alone. And yet we cannot live out our faith alone because we're also called to do it together in, in the body of Christ. So the last two weeks, we've looked at two pictures of what it means to have intimacy. Two pictures that are given in Hebrews about what it means to live life with God. We looked at the tabernacle. And we saw that what once was extremely exclusive, only one person once a year, having fulfilled all the requirements of the law, was able to enter in to the most holy place and experience the manifest presence of God on the mercy seat of the ark. And the writer of Hebrews says that now, because of Christ, we enter in with confidence to the most holy place. And when Christ gave up his spirit in Matthew 27, it says he gave up his spirit to God and the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And now for the people of God, there is no separation from the holy place, the most holy place, and where we live life. Because we, call, we walk with the holiness of God's presence in us. We are the temple. Our bodies are the temple of God. And we're called to live like it. So I challenge you to think of the thing that's your favorite thing to do in life and your least favorite thing that you have to do in life. And I challenge you from this day forward, whenever you're doing that thing, do it with God. Invite him in to that experience. I try to practice this and I'm growing, I'm learning, but I try to practice this in my daily life. So when I'm washing the dishes, 
often it's the last thing I want to do after wrestling three children for a half hour at the dinner table. But when I'm washing the dishes, to just stand there and say, Jesus, I just invite you to do this with me. And that, that may seem like a silly little thing, but it's important. Paul says to pray without ceasing. How do you pray without ceasing? By just involving God in your life, inviting him into the things that you're doing. When I play sports, I love playing sports. I always, before the game starts, whether I'm playing with Christian brothers or people who don't know the Lord, I always try to just say, when I'm out there playing, I want to do it with you, God. I want you to be a part of this. So it's not just me having fun. It's me experiencing your presence. The Holy of Holies travels with me because I'm the child of God and he calls me his temple. And the Holy of Holies travels with you because the spirit of God, the one who makes all things holy in the first place, lives within you. So invite him into your dinner. Invite him into folding laundry. Invite him into watching a movie with you. And invite him when you're reading a book to be present with you. Foster the presence of God, the awareness of it in your life. It's always funny to me when we invite God to be with us. As if we could be anywhere where God is not. Because where God is not, there is no life. There's no such thing as existence. And yet, the word of the Lord invites us to invite God. And there's, there's a spirit, uh, there's the song, um, I think it's titled Holy Spirit, where in the song it says, make us more aware of your presence. And that, that's probably a better way to phrase it. So, Lord, make us aware of your presence, because you said where two or three are gathered in your name, there I am. Your word says I will never leave you. If you never leave us, then you have to be with us, nor forsake you. So often for us as the people of God, what we need to learn is how to be aware of God's presence. How to be aware, how to see it, how to taste and see that the Lord is good. Then last week we looked at the picture of the mountain of God, which comes from Hebrews 12. And the writer of Hebrews shows two different mountains. And he says, you have not come to the mountain filled with smoke and gloom and darkness. Speaking of Mount Sinai, where the people of God received the old covenant. Rather, he says, you've come to Mount Zion and the city of David. It goes on to say, you've come to innumerable angels and the saints who have an inheritance who have gone before you. You've come to God. And then he says, you have come to Jesus himself. And so while once, just like the tabernacle, it was exclusive and it said, stay out. Once the people of God had a mountain and God said, stay off that mountain. According to the old covenant, they could not take a step or they would be stoned. But we've not come to that mountain. We've come to the Mount Zion where God says, come up. Come up and experience my presence. Come up and rejoice in the communion of the saints. Come up and rejoice with the Spirit of God. Come up to Jesus himself. That's a personal call and it's beautiful. This morning we're going to look once again, at a corporate part of what it means to live life with God, with others. It has to do with the, the church, the city, the building that we're called to build together, which Peter talks about in First Peter chapter 2. I think a lot of what Peter says in 
the other New Testament writers, when they talk about God's kingdom being present here and God's work here and our hope that God is actually working among us, I think a lot of that can be drawn back. Obviously, all of it goes back to Jesus and the hope that he gave us. But in his prayer, in the Lord's prayer, where he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth. On earth. As it is in heaven. Have you heard the phrase that Christians can be so spiritually minded that they're no earthly good, or no, so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? And uh, th- there is that temptation for us. Um, and we've got to know that, that God is doing a work here among us through, through his people and through his word. In 1 Peter chapter 2, which Philip read for us earlier, Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? So, this is not a rebuke. There's another place where it's a rebuke. You, sh- you should have moved on from the milk to the meat. And, and that's sort of a, a challenge and exhortation that you should be striving after deeper things in the Lord and you're satisfied with just the, the surface level. This, this isn't a rebuke here, what Peter's saying. He's saying we should crave the milk. My wife is pregnant with, with our fourth child. And at some point, in late May or June, we're going to have a newborn in our house, and our nights are going to be drastically changed once again. And in the middle of the night, there's going to be this little voice next to our bed crying out, Wah! 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 And we're going to know exactly what that means. I'm hungry. Mom, I'm hungry. Peter says we should be like that. In the middle of the night, you should be hungry for the presence and the word of the Lord. When you wake up in the morning, you should be hungry. How many times does a newborn have to be fed with milk throughout the day? Do you get time off, moms? It's relentless. Day after day, hour after hour, this baby hungers and thirsts. In the same way, in the same way, Peter exhorts us and you and me, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. I want to challenge you this morning. If you do not have that longing for God's milk daily, I would invite you to be convicted by the Holy Spirit today. If it is not a deep longing for you as a child of God to go after him on a daily basis, every day, then that means something else has taken the place of that. Something else that does not speak with the power authority of the word of God and his presence has filled that craving in you.
we run after all sorts of things and all sorts of food that aren't God's, God's food. His daily word, his provision for us. So I would just challenge you, and I've been there. I've been there so many times where I haven't hungered and thirsted. But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be satisfied. When we are in the night crying out for that pure spiritual milk, God is, is like the parent who does not leave us to just cry and be hungry. He says, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst. He, he does not slumber or sleep. He's not upset. He meets us in those places of darkness, in those places of longing. You will be satisfied, child of God. Peter says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you're here this morning, I'm assuming that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, or you have something within you that's crying out to taste and see. As you come to him, verse 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, us, we, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a glowing description of the church. This is a radiant description of who the church is. Who here has experienced a perfect church? Any hands raised? Who here has experienced a perfect marriage? Perfect set of parents? Perfect boss? Yeah, that's a good one. The Parker Ford staff is squirming right now. I'm standing up here. All of us know that the church is broken. All of us know that, that we can look around and that there is no such thing as, as that, that church. And if you're looking for it, good luck. Have fun with that journey. This, the churches that Peter's writing to are every bit as dysfunctional as the churches that all of us have experienced. And the churches that Paul writes to. If you read 1 Corinthians and read it with a commentary, you know how bizarre and messed up things were at that church. 
So Peter puts us in between a rock and a hard place here. Literally, with the rock of stumbling and offense, the cornerstone of Christ. But also in his description of who the church is. Because Peter's not, he, he's not unintelligent and he's not blind. How many times did Peter fall flat on his face? repeatedly, over and over again. And yet Jesus says to him, Peter, you're the rock upon which I will build my church. This broken, arrogant in many ways, weak man. And so when he looks at the church, he sees something that's beyond the surface of, what's, of what would be seen if you just look at the outside. I'm raising a daughter right now who just turned five. I mentioned that earlier. And it's like uh, one of my favorite things in the world is to be a dad of this girl because she's just so precious. She's so cute. It's unbelievable. She puts her hair up in pigtails and I'll go buy her a car, right? Like that's like, oh my goodness, she's amazing and she has my heart. She's the apple of my eye. And yet there's part of me that's terrified to raise this little girl because I know what's coming for her. In our culture. I know. What she's going to face. When I'm watching the Super Bowl later. And the commercials come on. What is she going to see? And what is her little spirit going to receive in that? And hear. What she's supposed to look like. And what she's supposed to do. And all of these things. And my heart. As her daddy. Breaks and is, is scared. Like, I'm, I'm honestly scared because I know what she's going to have to walk through. And I saw my sisters walk through. And I see my wife have to walk through. And it's painful. My heart breaks over that because she's going to be told lie after lie after lie about how she's supposed to look, how she's supposed to dress, what it means to have power as a woman. All, the list goes on and on and on. And my heart breaks as a dad. But I have faith and I have hope in Christ. Because he can care for her. And he can love her. And he sees what she needs. But one of the lessons that I want her to learn. Is that when you stand in front of the mirror. Gracie. And what you see. God loves your body. And he loves who you are. But when God sees you. That's not what he's looking at. Right? Right? That's not what God's looking at. What does he look at when he sees my daughter? He looks at her heart. He looks at her soul. He looks at her spirit. I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not a follower of Plato. I, I believe, I'm not, I don't hold a Platonic theology of Christ. So I'm not saying her body doesn't matter. It does matter. When God made it, he said it's good. It matters according to how he says it's good, though. Not according to how culture says it's good. Or the world says it's good. That's a bunch of garbage. Her body's good. But her soul and her spirit is good. And that's when God views her, he sees all of her. He sees who he has made her to be. And that is the most important lesson I can teach her as a father. As I'm raising her. That God views not what's on the surface. He views the relationship that's in the heart with God. Now when 
the church stands in front of the mirror. The bride of Christ stands up in front of the mirror. What's the mirror going to say back? Hypocrite. Sinner. Dirty. Stained. Unfaithful. Foolish. Weak. When the church, the bride of Christ, stands up in the mirror, this is what the mirror screams back. This is what the enemy screams back. You are unfaithful. You are unworthy. You are tarnished. You are unbeautiful. You are stained. You are a hypocrite. When the church, the bride of Christ, however, stands in front of Christ, the groom, the husband, what does he say to her? He says, you are spotless. What does he dress her in, according to Revelation 19? Beautiful gown of white. Radiant dress. She is gorgeous to him. She is fearfully and wonderfully made. So we're in a place of tension. Because, let me flip the question. Who here has been hurt by the church? Every hand should be raised. (laughs) Who here here has been wounded by someone who has a relationship with Christ? So we're stuck in a place of tension. It's not a bad place to be. In fact, I think it's exactly the place that the Spirit of God desires for us to be. I want to read this. This this is awesome. It's too long to put on a slide, but I was reading Scott McKnight, um, who's a New Testament scholar, his thoughts on this passage this week, and he just put it so well. Speaking of this, these words here about, listen, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Scott McKnight says, before we can even begin to apply Peter's exhortations and digressions to our world and churches, we need to perform, please listen, please listen, Quiet your hearts and listen to this. We need to perform surgery on our minds and hearts to see why Peter can have such a profoundly positive and exalted view of the church. It is not that Peter's churches were so much more pure, more godly, more evangelistic, more worshipful, more interrelated in fellowship, and more theological than contemporary churches. A close look at his churches, I'm sure, would turn up the same kind of factors present in Pauline churches and modern churches. Envy and jealousy, sexual immorality and perversions, insubordination and rebellion. In order to appreciate Peter's perspective on the church of Christ, it is important to grasp what constituted that church and what constitutes our church, a group of sinful people who have come to Christ for salvation and who are committed to walking in obedience. And that is no different from our churches today. The fact 
is what raises the problem. This fact is what raises the problem. Why is it that we are so critical of the church? Surely we do not need to pretend like a little girl coming home from class and teaching her own make-believe class in the quiet of her bedroom that we have all the right credentials, all the skill and all the knowledge that is required to go on. Nor do we need to pretend that we are all dressed in holiness, righteousness, justice, and mercy. It is entirely proper for the church to turn inward, to denounce its sins and its shortcomings. It is proper for theologians of the church to turn against the intellectual depravity of the church. And it is expected that prophets and preachers will point to the problems in our world. But the issue is this. How often do we resonate with this theme? And how often Do we criticize when we do? The issue becomes even more complex when we factor in the inherent beauty of the church as the bride of Christ, as the community of grace, and as the channel through which God has chosen to express his grace to our world. When we understand the nature of the church as Peter does here in such a profound manner, then, and only then, are we licensed to proceed into critique and battle. But before we can cross that bridge of evaluation of our own churches, we must stand on God's side and see how that church is constructed and discover its true nature. Did you hear that? We must choose to have the sight of Jesus towards his bride before we can say a thing about her. And the same is true for you individually. And this has been one of the major themes of this series Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You must view yourself through the eyes of Christ in order to view others through the eyes of Christ. Let me tell you something that is so important. It does not matter what you think of you. It does not matter what I think of you. It matters what Jesus thinks of you. And if you as a child of God, can take that invitation from Christ and turn from that so negative inward view that the, that the Satan, the deceiver, tempts us towards over and over again. You're nothing. You're no good. Hate yourself. You're a hypocrite. You're invited. Okay, on one level, that's true, apart from Christ. In Christ, not a word of that stands. When you can join Christ and view yourself as he views you, And say, it doesn't matter how I think about myself. It matters what you think of me. Then you can live like a child of God. Free and free indeed. And the same is true for our corporate nature as the bride of Christ. When we can, yes, we're hypocritical. Yes, we have failed people. We have sexually abused our children in churches. Think about that. Think about the gravity and the weight of that. And yet, when Christ views his bride, if we can step out and view her according to the word of God, this is what he says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. And then he tells us what we're supposed to do as the people of God, as the church. What are we supposed to do? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What's the mission of the church? 
What's the job of the church? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So here's what I want to do. I want you to get in groups for a few minutes, four or five people around you. And I want you to intercede and go to battle for the church. For, for Parker Ford Church, for the church in this region, for Pottstown, for Southeast Pennsylvania, for the church of Christ across this world. One of my favorite, most encouraging passages comes a little bit later in 1 Peter, where Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised, 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. When, when walking out your faith gets tough, don't act like it's strange. <laughs> this is normal. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted, For the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He goes on later to say, and don't wonder about it. Don't be confused about it because know this, that your brothers and sisters all over the world are facing the same things. So the church in the southern Philippines where I grew up, which could not be more different culturally than our church. At the end of the day, people are facing the same struggles in their spirit as we encounter today. There's different ways that that walks out. But it's the same temptations. The the ancient cry of every foolish person has always been, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So I want to invite you. There has been a whole bunch of spiritual attack that's been happening in our body recently. Um, We've had sickness. We've had Uh, marriages come against, we've had relational problems, we've had some major things happening just over the last couple weeks. So um, get in groups of four for a few minutes and let's just intercede. Will you join me in that? Can we do that as a people of God? Just spend a few moments in response to his word and prayer. So go ahead, get, get in groups and let's pray for the church. Intercede, bless the church. Ask, ask God that you might speak his words to her, proclaim to her. Prayer doesn't stop here, it begins here. Carry this with you, Parker Ford Church. Carry this with you throughout your day. Carry this with you throughout your week. Lift up your brothers and sisters. We need you. We need one another. One of... One of uh, Many of you have met Jay McCumber at some point and been blessed by, by his, his teaching. Jay's been a, a spiritual father to me, a mentor for me f- since I was a kid. And one of the things that he says about the, the body of Christ is you cannot hate the head and love the body. Or you cannot love the head and hate the body. We so often want to say, I'm cool with Jesus, but I'm not okay with his body. That's impossible. That is literally impossible because you, I cannot say to my wife, I want to marry your face, but I don't want to marry your body. How ridiculous. Who's the head of the body of Christ? 
Jesus, who is the body of Christ, his people. You cannot love Jesus and not love his people, which is why John says in 1 John, if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you're a liar and you make God out to be a liar. You have to love the body of Christ if you love Jesus. You don't have the option, which means we're stuck in this place of tension. We must view her as Christ views her, just like we must view ourselves as Christ views us. Why is this possible? Would you stand for this as I read this? Why is this possible? This is why it's possible. Verse 22, 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is why it's possible. That is why the church is radiant and spotless today. That is why you stand faultless before the throne of God because he bore your sins on that cross and you have died to sin and you live to righteousness. So let's live like it and let's sing like it and let's act like it.